He's got questions, he's got answers Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway He's got problems, he won't solve them But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face Science, faith, and life Okay, friends, today I am talking with one of my favorite people in the world, the one, the only, Kevin Garcia, who's a digital pastor, intuitive life coach, podcaster you may recognize from their show, A Tiny Revolution. They are the creator of the queerly beloved apparel line, of which I own several items, and also the Big Queer Adventure Company. Kevin is an artist and an advocate and a thinker and a brilliant human being gosh i don't know it is weird kevin to do a bio for you because (laughs) although i am so impacted by your work i am so much more impacted by your life Mm. Um, and so friends uh listening you are just getting to hear a conversation between friends Mm -hmm. i just love kevin so much and uh today we're gonna have a conversation about life and about faith and uh especially about a new project that kevin has that is about to come out maybe we could start there kevin and sure you tell people what you're up to right now well first of all thank you for all those nice things i think very similar things about you i am working my newest project then like the one that's like closest to my mind right now is my new book it's called bad theology kills and the subtitle is undoing toxic belief and reclaiming your spiritual authority. And this book has been floating around my head for like two years now. And I was running around trying to find someone to get representation for it, to get a publishing deal. And then um, it was actually after talking with Jamie Lee Finch, she's like, yeah, I just self-published it and it's been fairly successful. And I, you know, there was like a lot of hoops that she didn't have to drive through. And also I was like, you know, I can, it's like after you send the book proposal to a few people, um, you recognize like, ah, the industry is quote unquote not ready. They keep saying people aren't ready for this. And then I was thinking, I was like, no, it's not that. It's that the industry is not ready to take take a risk on a book like that is going to like point out, you know, all the problems um, rather than just like offering a solution. You know, I I, I try to do both at the same time. Um, Mm. But the book starts out with uh, my narrative, sharing my story of being queer and Christian and coming out and surviving queer th- uh, queer conversion therapy. I talk about reframing old Bible stories that I have for so long seen as oppressive texts as the things that have really liberated me. Um, we talk about um, opinions. We talk about bias. We talk about guns. We talk about women's bodies. We talk about immigrants. We talk about queer stuff because it goes beyond just like the conversation of whether or not it's okay to be queer. Um, because I want to talk about the theology that is killing every single one of us. Um, because, uh, I'm ready to not have my people hurting anymore. I'm ready for people to start finding healing. And I'm so happy that I gave myself permission to just write the damn thing. Um, which I think is wild because four years ago, like, you know, my pastor said I couldn't leave a small group and I like cowered in fear. And, mm. you know, now I'm wearing red lipstick and preaching on my seminary's pulpit. So like, you know. <laughs> and you can wear some red lipstick. Wow. 
Thing I will say, like, I love wearing a red lipstick, but it has to be one of those things where just like, if I have to wear this, I have to be so confident in this because it can easily also go in one other direction where like, if I try to do like too much in my face and wear a red lip, I just kind of look like a clown, which I love mm. clowns, but uh, I don't want to be a clown unless I'm going out in drag. And that's a whole nother story. You know, I wonder if part of the tension that the quote industry unquote runs mm-hmm. into is probably something that's happening in the listeners right now Hmm. in the combination of the words queer and Christian. Hmm. There are a lot of queer listeners of Ask Science Mike, and there are a lot of Christian listeners of Ask Science Mike, but the number of queer Christian listeners Hmm. is a lot smaller. So there's people whose journey... Uh, into exploring and understanding their own gender identity and their own orientation and their own unique representation of humanity has led them to uh, move beyond and even and even no longer like at all their their faith origin faith story of origin. And on yeah. the other hand, you have Christians who are listening who might be um, empathetic, even sympathetic to the issues around queerness and LGBTQ uh, matters in life and even in theology, but they personally um, don't identify with the term queer. And so they might, mm. uh, they might be more likely to retweet you than to jump into the book. But having, um, having read your text and in various versions throughout its evolution and growth, mm. uh, there's something for not just queer Christians, but queer people who no longer identify as Christians and for Christians who don't actually identify as queer. What was that tension like for you as you wrote this book? I think what I realized as I was, when I, if it started with like, okay, I'm going to just self-publish this thing and be done with it. And that I think gave me permission to say the thing that like this book has been trying to say the whole time, Um, which is basically like, I think by the end of this book, I was, I feel like I was like writing a book. I need to write a book to save my own faith is like maybe what I was on a mission for. And in Mm. some ways I think I accomplished that, but not in the way that I expected because at the end of it, it's like, okay, like, you know, we're making this case about what bad theology is doing and how we can restructure it so we can hold on to this label you know, and, and, and hold on to just like the way things have always been. But as I was writing, like the thing that came up is just like, guys, we have to question everything, absolutely everything. And also like, it, it just kind of like hit me in my face it was like, Kevin, we stopped asking permission a long time ago. Why are you asking permission from Christians to be Christian if you want to be Christian? Hmm. And it was almost like this thing where like, as soon as I was okay with letting the label go, as soon as I was okay with saying, you know what, like if people don't see me as Christian, that's like, fine. Okay, cool. Like I'm still going to do this thing that I want to do and help this particular group of people. And um, it really doesn't matter if you call me a Christian or not, because the work is going to get done. Um, so it's like the question I've been enamored with is like, who do you say that I am? You know, if you look at my life and like you see Jesus, then great, then I'm a Christian. You look at my Instagram and you see all my tarot card readings and you say, oh my gosh, that's a witch. And I'm like, okay, well then <laughs> I'm a witch. Fine. Like, 
whatever's good. But like at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm genuinely not, I feel very free of this um, need to, need to justify myself any longer. And there's like a, I don't know, there's a, there's this deep sense of knowing that like, if I get new information in the future, I can change my mind. But right now I'm, I feel like I'm walking into like, I don't like saying the wild, wild west of theology, but I'm like, I'm particularly referencing the movie with Will Smith, Wild, Wild West, where it's Mm -hmm. just like steampunk wildness full of just like all sorts of people who are reimagining what it is to be a spiritual being in the world. And that's really like, I think as I was writing this book, it's like, I wanted A, my mom to be able to read it um, and make sense of my experience in some ways. And I think there's, for all the coverage of queer folks in the world, there's not a whole lot. There's still like a lack of representation. Like, you know, there's mm-hmm. like, we need more queer stories until they become so common that they actually saturate the market. Like, I want people to get bored with this narrative so that we can move on from it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, let's let's get let's get the trauma out there so we can heal the trauma and move on. That's what I'm really interested in. Um, and I think that's like what this book has helped me do is like really spell out exactly how I arrived at what I believe and why I believe. And then also at the same time, holding in tension, I don't know shit. (laughs) And that's like the most comforting thing is like, I can just, I don't have to know. I just need to do the next right thing. And that to me is very comforting. Mm. And as I was thinking about who would be reading it is like, I want this to be the book that like, you know, my mom picks up and finally understands me or a book that is like you would give to like your one, like nice moderate friend who has been sitting on the fence for a while. And like, they're really, really big about like ending sex trafficking, but they also don't care about black lives matter. Um, Mm. That kind of friend who's like, you know, they're woke TM, but they're not like ready for (laughs) restorative justice. You know what I'm saying? You know the one. I've never heard that phrase until this moment, and it is delightful. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's what I call it. It's that one person out there who's like, just like they, it's like they over-police everybody about their behavior because they're over-critical of themselves. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, dude, you are, you're doing that performance thing, but you're not actually being transformed. You still think it's about right action. It's about just being. Oh, that's another thing I get into in the book. But, well, you know, you guys can go read it if you want me to. I'm not going to preach at you for an hour because as much yeah, as I we're, love we're preaching. Not, we're going to get them enough to get interested, but not so much that they feel satisfied. <laughs> that is my goal with this conversation yeah, today. We're going to give you a taste, you know. I'm so careful in choosing sponsors for Ask Science Mike because I want um, I want to keep doing the show and I want you to feel uh, like... Like, I've earned your trust. And I love that BetterHelp is one of the sponsors of this program because I think mental health is so important. If you don't know BetterHelp, BetterHelp, they are an online mental health counseling service. Uh, They are wonderful. And I use this service myself in my pursuit of mental health and stability. Uh, What they do is they let you use a website or an app on your computer or your mobile device to talk to licensed therapists, over 3,000 in all 50 states, by the way, 
uh, over chat or text or phone or video. Um, and it's super convenient and super affordable and super easy. Uh, sometimes it's hard for me to drive to the therapist's office in Los Angeles traffic. And also finding a therapist is an overwhelming process. And BetterHelp is very simple. You go in, you fill out a secure, convenient uh, questionnaire, and they will match you with a therapist you like. And if you don't like the therapist you're matched with, you can request another one at any time, and they will find you a new therapist. There's so many uh, specializations available in anxiety, family conflicts, uh, anger, depression, sleep issues, trauma, relationships, grief, grief, self-esteem, LGBTQ matters. All of these things have specialists assigned to them. And I know that for issues I'm working through right now, I was amazed at how BetterHelp was able to zero in on a professional who was uniquely able to help me in that situation. So if you'd like to join me in pursuing better health, just go to betterhelp.com slash Science Mike, where you can get a 10% discount off your first month. And don't forget that this service is affordable and available on a sliding scale for people with low or restricted incomes. To learn more and to get started today, just go to betterhelp.com slash science Mike. There is one thing I'd like to explore a little deeper on that mm-hmm. that note as you kind of go back and saying, who do you say that I am? Mm-hmm. And that you're, you identify as a Christian, whether you know other Christians would accept that identity label or not. And you know, for me as someone who does not identify as queer, mm-hmm. but who has pretty deeply studied queer theory and queer theology, Mm-hmm. Um, I have found that for uh, the cishet, straight, monogamous crowd, oh, there's yeah. actually tremendous freedom mm-hmm. on the other side of studying queer scholarship. Yes. Because the marginalization that straight, cishet, monogamous people create that force queer people to plot their own way and mm-hmm. to claim their own identity boldly, I think about how many people listening right now who might identify mm-hmm. as straight yeah. and might be cis, but like in their bones, the notion of being a Christian, whether or not someone else allows it, mm-hmm. speaks to something. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So there's yes. this weird way in which the system that gives me as a a cis man privilege, um, the way out of that self-captivity mm-hmm. is to learn from the one marginalized by the system that mm-hmm. holds me up. And yeah. it's that's such a remarkable notion to me. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, I've been kind of um, flipping the way that I view other people around recently because I was uh, talking to someone else for another podcast for the book, and I, I out. This is me outing myself again. I read a course in miracles, and I fucking love it. And just for the record, all of you people out there, Marianne Williamson did not write a course in miracles. While she preaches from it, she's not the only teacher about it. And something that just like really stuck with me is a passage that said, "Um, 
if you go to wake somebody who is a part of, who is in a frightful dream, like you come into the room with a light and you disturb them, they're going to perceive that light to be a threat because they're like they're not fully conscious yet. They they're going to think that that light that you're bringing is a part of their fearful dream. But once the light is actually perceived for what it is, the person who is awakened no, also finally perceives the light to be what it is as the release from the dream so that they can see that not only have they been set free, but that they are truly free. And so what I think about in my own walk recently, and this, I think like the work that so many queer people of faith and organizers do is we walk into these spaces and, and actually like you do it too, actually, Mike, it's like you walk into the space with like your light because like, possessed it i've worked on it and i'm here to just be who i was created to be if you will and so when i walk into a space saying something that like jesus loves me and i'm queer you know or that i'm a queer christian or a queer person of faith um you know the light of who i am is going to disturb the person who is in the frightful dream so when i think about like all the people who are going to take issue with me, it's just like, oh, like you, you don't, it's the thing is like, it's not that you take issue with me. It's that you're, you live in an illusion where you think that you are separate from me. Like mm. you think that my words are a threat to you when really like they are an invitation for you to come. And so it's, it's like, it's almost like it's allowed me to forgive so many people who have hurt me in the past because I recognize, of course you would act this way, you know? Now, granted, it doesn't like, um, this does not take away the responsibility of people who have done harm. People still need to repent. Reparations still need to be paid. And at the same time, it allows us for a path forward, at least in my understanding. So one example I, I talk about in my book is my relationship with my father who passed away two years ago. Um, my father never got to wake up from his own illusions. Um, he was someone who was uh, a lovely human in many ways, but also deeply flawed in many ways. And he hurt me and my brothers and my family in really, really huge ways. Mm-hmm. But when I look at him from like, you know, a thousand feet and, you know, really like see him for who he is, I see all the bad things. And I also see all the hurt. You know, my dad, like, you know, didn't have his mom growing up, was a part of an adopted family who was abusive, joined the military at 18 and like lost all of his racial identity because he was Americanized through the military because that's what he had to do to survive. And when I look at that life and how it, his life impacted mine, it's like, well, yeah, of course you would act like that. You were living in a frightful dream and no one was there to help wake you. And so for that, like, you know, I can have mercy for that reality and also just recognize that even though I didn't talk to my dad before he died, you know, like, I was also doing what I had to do. I don't know if that makes any sense, but all I have to say. <laughs> it makes say, absolute sense to me. Yeah. And so it was like when you were saying just like, you know, the system that props me up, it was like, oh, well, yes and no. It's like, sure, you benefit from privilege because that's just like the world we live in. And also you recognize it for the illusion that it is. You know what I'm saying? It's like, because you don't I see do. you and you don't see me and you as separate. Like, that's the thing. Gosh, no. <laughs> and that, and that's also true of like everything else. It's like, um, and maybe this is like a, this is my ridiculously hopeful self is like, I was talking with Andre Henry the other day. Um, 
And we were joking. He's like, so what's the deal with like, are you what you do? Because it's just like, you don't want to call nobody a racist because like, it's, they're not, they're, it's not that they're racist. It's that they do racist things. I'm like, well, that's one way to put it. Or you could say that they are racist, but they don't have to stay racist. You know, mm. Mm. you can repent. <laughs> you can change your mind. Oh, I guess I think, that's what I'm so excited about. Um, everyone getting to listen in on us talking today mm. is, um, you know, less than half of the listeners of my program identify as Christian. A significant majority of those are what we would call post-Christian. They were Christians. Now they're not. Mm. But then there. a decent number of them never Christians uh, in really? their life. Yeah, good for, well, there's, good for you, I guess. Uh, you know, a, a, a big part of my original appearance in the world of media was a, a guest on You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes. <gasps> what and a guy. so uh, that and my early kind of works in, in talking about atheism from an advocacy perspective mm -hmm. uh, means that there's a significant number of secularists and humanists and and even anti-theists, people who think belief in God is kind of dangerous, uh, listen mm -hmm. to this work and... It's very uh, and so with this this weird this weird coalition, but they get to hear me talk about um, confronting these systems as being both costly and personally liberated. But they get to mm. hear it on like the backside, meaning after I've done a bunch of reading, after I've had a bunch of off microphone conversations, right? And I guess what I'm trying to say is the reason I feel comfortable identifying as a Christian is because of you. You're one of a handful of people that make me feel not just comfortable, but proud to hold on to that part oh. of my identity because I see it in a way um, that reclaims this faith as for something that comes from the margins. So the Christianity, mm -hmm. the Jesus of Kevin Garcia um embraces queerness mm -hmm. the, the 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 jesus in that space is not propping up american exceptionalism and white supremacy the jesus i encounter through you and andre henry or austin channing brown it, it it's a it's a faith i get excited about yeah um in a way that i i don't think many of my white secular listeners can understand like how on earth could you uh reclaim this label but it's because mm. i started a journey that was books and reading scholarship um but then it was it's really friendships like my relationship with you yeah, that yeah. have changed me as a person and frankly made me less fragile because mm. it's no longer um that queerness is some hypothetical context or something I encounter with people online. Mm -hmm. um, queerness is something literally at the Thanksgiving table. Yeah, and it, it, it's such a different and wonderful and freeing context. I've I wrote in my next book about um, kind of the the personality change, the life change mm. that comes for men and white people, and especially white men, from breaking out of our self-created social exclusion from all these other wonderful intersections of identity in the world. And it's funny to me how the Twitter fight of the day about free speech or whatever <laughs> takes on a different tone and timbre 
when different identities are no longer hypothetical, but they're the right. people you talk to each day. Yeah. And that's something I also, I wrote about in, uh, in my text about how people, it's very interesting to me. It's, there are still people in the world who like, for whom queer people are hypothetical, like for Franklin Graham, for example. Um, and I'm specifically referencing the whole recently Hallmark pulled that commercial with, uh, two queer women kissing on camera after they got married. And, uh, then people, you know, obviously raised hell about it. And then they were like, glad got involved. And then Hallmark said, our bad, we're dumb. We put the commercial back and we're like, yay, don't do it again. That's my feelings about it. But then Franklin Graham (laughs) tweets out, uh, first of all, I don't watch Hallmark channel because I can't stand it. I can't stand Christmas movies. People are going to crucify me about that, but they're not good. They're all, they're not good. And people the thing will is, come at you about that. And the thing about it is, is that the people who watch them know they're not good and still want me to watch it with them. I'm just like, could we do anything else? Like, can I at least like play Pokemon shield while you're doing this? I'll stay in the room with you, but this is horseshit on the TV. I'm sorry, mom. <laughs> um, right. Right. Anyways, um, Franklin Graham, to bring it back to the point. Franklin Graham tweeted just like, there are some of us who are going to change the channel when this, uh, he didn't say abomination, but he might as well, you know, he might as well just drop an F-bomb because we all know that's what he wants to say. Um, But he's just like, we're going to change the channel. And I'm like, it must be so sad for you to hate somebody so much or hate something that you don't even, it doesn't even have flesh and bones on it for you. Because if you knew actual queer people, like you wouldn't fucking say that to them. Like, cause like you, you could not sit in front of someone and say like, you are not even worth me looking at you on the television. Like you're not even worthy to pass in front of my eyes. That's what you're saying, Franklin Graham. And so when I look at that, I'm just like, that's bad theology, baby. And like, that's the thing. It's just like, you, you, you your, your God is so small. And it's, it's that idea of just like, if you don't, it's, it's exposure. And within like evangelical subculture, like they, uh, everything outside of it is a threat. And it's also really hard to undo those mindsets. And I know because I was one for so long, you know? And, but the thing about it is, is like, it's that illusion of separateness. Like Franklin Graham thinks that he is separate from me. Franklin Graham doesn't think that my queerness is welcome in the kingdom of God. He's in a frightful dream. Um, and I want to wake his ass up. There's a part of me, like, I tell you what, because I'm uh, such a feisty human, I've had fantasies in my mind, not sexual fantasies, mind you, um, <laughs> where I'm on the stage. <laughs> I have to, you know, I need to specify because I talk about sex a lot. So got to yeah, specify. Because this involves Franklin Graham, and I don't want to have a sexual fantasy about Franklin Graham, frankly. <laughs> Especially because he's got, uh, oh no, that was Jerry Falwell who had the the pool boy, right? Yeah, Jerry Falwell. Falwell's taken, unfortunately. Oh, God damn, that gray beard zaddy action. I can't help myself. <laughs> just kidding, that's gross. No, he's not gross. He's just um, a despicable man. Um, anyways, Franklin Graham, I would, lo- I would love to just sit on a stage with any like, Christian, like, faith social leader. Like, put me on stage with, like, Judah Smith, like, somebody who's, like, real high up there. And I just want to, like, talk circles around them and just be like, make it make sense to me. 
Like, tell me how that, tell me how you saying that me being gay, I love you, but I, I hate your sin. Tell me how that makes sense to you. Cause you seem like you're a logical person. Seems that you can, and that's the thing is like, people won't admit that they've got this bias and they don't even fucking know why. I'm like, at least know why. And the thing about it is, if you just think it's gross, just say it's gross. And then like, well, no, to not talk to you anymore. Because the thing about it is, is like someone out there has a gay friend or in, and they know gay couples and like they don't think it's, it, it's anything gross. But then there are those who, the disgust is bred into us. I mean, that's what was bred into me as a child was just like gay things are disgusting. Abomination. So it's a cultural thing that has to shift. It's just like y'all gotta, which is again, why we need to have queer representation to normalize in front of everyday people so that we can hopefully move the vote and then blah, 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 2020, save us. Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or literally anybody else except the monster. What's the linkage between what you just said that when we were growing up, we were just taught that queerness is gross Mm. and the core tenet of the book, which is that bad theology kills. Is there Mm -hmm. any link there? Yeah, it's exactly that. So this is actually, um, I made a post on the Instagram today. Um, just a slight trigger warning for those people who are really sensitive. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, depression, suicidal ideation for 0.5. Nothing super heavy, though. Um, uh, in a group that I'm in on Facebook, somebody posted that another one of their queer friends took their life. Um, and this was the second person in two weeks. And it's like... Uh, I mean, like I know what that feeling is like because I was someone who attempted twice. And the reason I did that is because I was disgusted with myself. I was disgusted with myself because I was taught that it was disgusting. It was an abomination that God thinks this is gross. Not just that it's bad to do, but that it is disgusting and vile. And only only gross people do this. Like that's like, was the feeling. It's not just, it's gross. Um, and to find something gross or disgusting is to view it as something that is not human. Because we can only think that which is not human is disgusting. Because if you saw something as human, you could never say that. And so we learn to view ourselves as not human and therefore not worthy of the same protections as other humans. We see ourselves as the problem. Um, or at least like we see our bodies as the problem because we're that's where desire originates, you know, in the body. So when your desire, when you learn how to be disgusted by your desire, which also like, you know, if you're someone who experiences allosexuality, like, you know, you're attracted to other humans of any variety. Um, you know, like I'm somebody who like, I walk down the street and like, I'll notice somebody who has a body period and be turned on probably because I'm turned on by almost everyone. Cause I think people are beautiful, but like, imagine, you know, being a teen and having your hormones raging and every single moment thinking he's hot. Oh my God, you're disgusting. Only gross people think that, Kevin. And I would talk to myself like that. Um, and that's what I was taught to. And I also, I did this thing. <laughs> um, this is a small little anecdote in the book that I like. Um, I had a, they taught us to do this thing with a rubber band where every time you had a lustful thought, you were supposed to snap the rubber band so that you would associate uh, the bad thoughts with uh, a pains, like a Pavlov's dog sort of thing. However, what they did not count on was the fact that like that, 
I think somehow informed like my kinks later in life because <laughs> I'm just saying a little bit of pain goes a long way for me. <laughs> and I'm like, woo, that's something I need to bring up with my therapist probably. I mean, that's a common thing based on uh, the questions I get from listeners. Mm, that is totally. not in any way uh, rare. I mean, I, you know, uh, a little transparently, this, this show, we talk a lot about sexuality uh, mm -hmm. and, but I, you know, I'm kind of a like, let's spike pleasure with pleasure guy personally. Mm. Oh, I love doing that. I double <laughs> but down. A lot of people I've noticed that that is a thing. Uh, one thing I was reflecting on in like this, I'm always thinking about how do we universalize a story, right? The personal is universal mm -hmm. is something Rob right. Bell says a lot. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so what, I'm saying this, I'm, I'm not decentering you. And if this is a swing and sure. a miss, we'll edit it out of the show. <laughs> okay. But as you spoke, something resonated in me mm -hmm. that I wonder if might help other listeners right now right. explore their own life experiences. And I thought about how, like when I was a little kid, mm -hmm. I hated seafood. Hmm. Like I hated seafood so much that I would literally retch if someone tried to get me to eat fish. Like, mm -hmm. like I was about to vomit and, uh, I grew and grew and grew and I just knew I hated seafood. And then one day in my twenties, I went to a sushi restaurant with somebody I really wanted to impress and yes. everybody ate sushi. And so I not wanting to not to look uncultured, basically, uh, Same. ate sushi and then figured out, whoa, I love sushi. So one thing I just wanted to name is as we grow, things that used to be appalling to us, mm -hmm. socialized or otherwise, may not be. Right. But to make that even more specific, when I was young and culturalized, I absolutely thought queerness was gross. And I don't mm -hmm. want to trigger anyone saying that yeah. by saying that. But I thought it was physically revolting. Mm -hmm. And then I got to puberty and suddenly same-sex interactions between women weren't gross anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but I still had this anti-gay mm -hmm. physical revulsion. And I got to the point where my theology changed and my understanding changed mm -hmm. and my heart opened to gay men and to trans women and trans men. But I still had this like physical ick factor that I, yeah. I kind of struggled with for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, and then what do you know? It just start. It just faded over time. It just got so normal. So yeah. now if I see a commercial where or a TV show where two men kiss, I'm far more likely to cry. <laughs> I know <laughs> than anything else because I'm like, please let's make this world. Let's make this world mm -hmm. where just love is accepted and celebrated. Mm -hmm. And the reason I share that immediately after you're you sharing your own experience with kind of an internalized homophobia mm -hmm. is not to center the, the, the cis perspective. I don't want to do that, but to say that this is a journey mm -hmm. we all take when we confront powerful social narratives right because our brains equate dominant social narratives with physical safety so it mm -hmm. protects you in some way 
if you grow up in, in, in a deep conservative fundamentalist context to have a physical revulsion to something that you're either kind of benign, don't care about really, or actually attractive to because mm -hmm. there's a high cost to being ejected from a social group when you're a human being. Yeah. And I just wanted to name and reiterate that we grow and mm -hmm. we change and whatever happens in our bodies, we should be aware of, but we shouldn't assume is permanent or inflexible right. uh, or, or, or some kind of fate that we cannot mm -hmm. uh, find a way out of. Yeah. It's one of, like, it's one of those very interesting things where like, I look at my mother, for example, too, my mother, excuse me, my mother, when I first came out, um, when I was a teen, um, much by accident, my father ended up outing me. Um, she was not accepting. She was not on board. She didn't know what to do with it, but she did know that she wanted to protect me and also protect me from the fires of like literal hell. So sweet, misguided, but sweet. Um, and so I was in ex-gay therapy. We started that when I was like 15 years old and I was in there for 12 years um, between different kinds of groups. Even after Exodus International folded, I was still part of things like Living Waters and then various men's groups at different churches because like they'll sneak it in there. Ex-gay therapy is sneaky like that. They won't call it ex-gay therapy. They'll call it like, I went to this thing, they called it the rescue. Like, and it was this whole like band of brothers situation. Like we are men and we're going to, do man things and i'm like oh you guys really don't get this do you um anyways all that to say 11 years or like 12 years later when i came out to my mother again and told her i said like you know when we tried doing that i wanted to kill myself she for her it it kind of clicked with her and she's like okay i'm going to try to understand this and even if i don't understand it i know that i love you and i know that you're a good human and that, you know, I can trust you. And so it was a really interesting moment where it's just like, this is like the same woman who, you know, a decade earlier told me that don't make me choose between God and you, Kevin, because you know who I'm going to pick. And now she like, and then like last year uh, or two years ago, um, I took my partner at the time home for Christmas and she loved him so well and was so kind and just like, and it wasn't weird anymore. And it was so shocking to me because like, you know, I, I, I had the very worst, not the very worst, but I had like a hard time my first time coming out. And then the second time she showed up. So it's like, you're right. Like people do change. People grow. Like people can do the work of changing their minds about certain things. Granted, like I'm lucky because that doesn't happen for every queer person. But it is like proof positive for me that if I am gentle and I show up with my light and simply shine it, show up with who I am and simply like, and don't apologize for it, don't shrink back from it and stand up for myself when I need to. If I just do the, be myself and like everything will work itself out. And the thing is too, it's just like, even if my mother never came around, I think that there is like a resiliency that I've developed or maybe was gifted to me. I'm not quite sure where it comes from. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. I mean, and I so appreciate the sensitivity 
to share a story of hope and then also to have the sensitivity for those people mm. for whom that yeah. hope won't happen or is impossible. Say, yeah. you know, a queer person who both their parents have already passed and never, yeah. never came around. And yeah. And that was my dad. My dad never really, he never really came around from being honest. He told me, he's like, Oh, like I call, I came out to him on the phone. He said, Kevin, you know, I never really had a problem with your sexuality. I'm just like, bullshit, Barbara. I was yeah. so, I was so mad at him. I was like, you whack. But, you know, people love believing their own narratives. I mean, that's myself included. But like, it's really, really interesting. Like when you have people, I have people in my life who like, I say, they can take, they can tell me no. Like I have people in my life who will tell me the truth and tell me if I've gone too far. Um, and if I need to apologize, like I actively have friends who call me out on shit because I need them. Um, and I think there is something about having people who would tell you the truth. And there's so many people who are just going along with the delusion and who are willing to go along with your delusion because they don't want to deal with your shitty feelings about getting called out. And so yeah. like there has been a part of me where like we have to stop equating being wrong with being bad. Um, because I will be wrong a thousand times over, but that never impacts my belovedness, my goodness, uh, my worth. Um, I had a conversation with um, one of my people recently um, where we had to talk about just like, hey, like, I feel like you crossed a boundary within this area of my life. And it was like really tough to have the conversation with the person. And then on the other side, like, we were free again because we... We could tell we we trusted each other enough to tell each other the truth, and now it's like we I trust her more now because I could tell her the truth and she could receive it. And the same thing with my friends who call me out on my bullshit. I trust them more because I know that they will tell me the hard truth. So that's the people I look for in deep relationships, and I think that's something that like I want to. I think that I'm encouraging in my book. I talk about radical honesty. I call it radical honesty. I don't know if it's actually radical or if it's just telling the truth because it doesn't feel that radical now that I've been doing it for a while. Um, but when I explain it to people, um, people are like, whoa, that sounds tough. And I'm like, I don't know if it's difficult. I think it's different, but I don't think it's that difficult. And so here are the rules. Number one is I'm always okay to say what I feel. And I know that I'm responsible for my feelings. Meaning that like if I if someone's upset with me or if I have upset someone or I am upset with someone, I need to own that. And I either need to go to them and bring and say like, hey, you've upset me. I want to reconcile and be okay. Or I need to learn to let it go because I'm being petty. Most of the time I'm being petty. I'm being, <laughs> if I'm being honest. So uh, that's the first part. The second part is I have to always name my needs. And I know that I'm responsible for getting my own needs met. Um, so I can name my needs to my community, to my family, to my friends. And if for whatever reason they can't meet it, it's like, okay, well, I still have a need for, for me, like I have this need for physical touch, um, that I have actually been neglecting a lot recently. And it came up in my therapy session earlier today. Ooh, let me tell you, stay, stay in therapy kids. It, it, it helps. Um, but I, uh, I, I need it. I need touch. And because we're not um, socialized to have like non-sexual intimate touch. 
it's hard to find that sometimes. So like, it's like, I have some of my friends, I'm just like, can I please just like sit next to you and you put your arms around me? Cause I just, I need that for, to stay sane. Um, but I know that's responsible for me to get that need met period. Um, and I have to ask for it because how are people going to know if I need something, if I don't say something, what a concept. And the last thing is I'm always okay to ask for what I want. If I'm always okay with hearing no. Um, and that's a concept I borrow from the ethical slut. And a lot of times I had, like they use that rule, like in the bedroom, it's like, you can ask for anything as long as you're always okay with hearing no. And I think that's true of anything. Like I can always ask for the thing I want and always I can be okay with hearing no, because you know, I don't ever want to impede on someone else's freedom. And I also want to get the things that I want because I'm a human with desire. And it's really, really hard to do all those things perfectly all the time, but it is a goal that I strive for. And what I do within saying what I, I feel and naming my needs and asking for what I want is there is no longer any ambiguity in me um, about who I am or what I want or what, my, like, I feel like I'm finally like a unified person. I think this is what they call integrity in some circles. Um, but it, it, is, it has become like I'm now a person who like my yes is my yes and my no is my no. And I don't have to fear people misunderstanding me because I've been very clear. And if you misunderstand me, that's because you might have misperceived me. Or maybe I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'll repent. It's very, see how that works? Is you can say sorry. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. But I'm never afraid of being wrong anymore. And that's really what I'm, so happy about is like we can be wrong and it's not the end of the world we're not going to be punished forever in a lake of fire nope because we made that up too <laughs> and mm. yeah i just this is the kind of like that's good religion to me and i feel like it's if we can figure out how to if, let me say that if i can figure out how to do this for myself maybe i can help other people do it too and then maybe we'll have a revival, but not like that, you know? Mm. The book is Bad Theology Kills. Mm. When and where will it be available? It is going to be available. Right now, it's available for pre-order on my website, which is thekevingarcia.com. And it's going to be out end of, uh, end of January, beginning of February. We're still working on a release date because we got some moving parts going on. But... Um, End of January is what I'm shooting for. And I really, really cannot wait for people to have this in their hands. And they can also engage with your larger life and work there as well and connect with you, I assume, on mm -hmm. social media as well. Yep. TheKevinGarcia.com is a way to connect with me. And all the social medias, um, the Kevin Garcia. If you want inspiration, go to Instagram. If you want snark, go to Twitter. If you want <laughs> long-form mini-blogs, go to Facebook. Um, and if you want a tarot reading, um, slide into my DMs and let's get it going. <laughs> okay. And we um, will have links to Kevin's website in the show notes on this episode of Ask Science Mike on mm. our website, asksciencemike.com. Kevin? Yeah? Thanks for talking with me today. I have so enjoyed getting to talk to you, Mike. It's always a pleasure. I genuinely like you. <laughs> Likewise, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> I was so excited when I looked at my, I was like, two recording sessions in one day. What am I going to do? I don't have that many spoons. And then I saw that uh, it was a conversation with you. And I said, oh, that's not going to take any spoons. Yeah. I'll probably give you some back. I, you know what? If I can give anyone a spoon, 
Big Spoon or Little Spoon? You let me know. <laughs> I'm versed. You know what I'm saying? Oh. <laughs> this is why I can't be allowed in public, you guys. Mm-hmm.